we're going to do an episode that is a first for us, and that's an emergency episode. It sounds very important and fancy, and we're very excited at the prospect of doing something important and fancy, even if we don't get necessarily an avalanche of listeners. Now, to be more serious, we've had a number of questions emailed to us or texted to us over the last week and a number of inquiries from our journalist friends about what's going to happen with the sovereign debt of Russia, Ukraine, and Belarus. And there are implications here for a number of other sovereigns as well that hopefully we will get to. But I'd like to start off our podcast today by posing the question to Mark, and then we're going to have a conversation about this, about whether we are likely to see a set of unexpected sovereign defaults arise in the next few weeks. And the three countries I'd like to pose to Mark are Russia, Ukraine, and Belarus. Mark? I'm going to eventually punt the Belarus question back to you. And in some ways, I mean, there has already been the equivalent of a default by Russia, right? With the instruction not to make payments to foreign holders of the ruble-denominated debt. If I'm, if I'm not mistaken, that has already happened. And and in some ways, maybe the the most interesting or most puzzling question is whether we will not see a default by Ukraine. Uh, since at least last I heard, there was an insistence that the, the country would pay the make uh, stay current on payments uh, coming up, even though it has every reason to devote uh, every dollar it has to humanitarian and security kinds of needs. So um, maybe that's the question we should be asking me too. What do you think? So, so okay, I, I think that that's fair enough. Let's start with Ukraine. So Ukraine, uh, as I understand it, has both said that it will continue to pay its sovereign debt and wants to borrow more, I think in the form of short-term borrowing from its diaspora. Now, that makes sense if they can do a lot of short-term borrowing from the diaspora. Uh, I am a little bit skeptical about this attempt to borrow from the diaspora short-term, given the high degree of uncertainty that, that, you know, I think they probably have better luck just asking for donations. They seem to be doing well there. But more generally, it seems that Ukraine has a really good justification for just not paying right now. Now, one of the questions that I, I haven't thought through enough is whether or not this would be a legally cognizable justification. 
but they need to use every single dollar to defend against the Russians. And uh, a subsidiary question to this is, uh, now that Russia is basically interfering with their ability to pay their debt, uh, does not the responsibility for first the default and second paying this fall on Russia in some way? Sort of intentional interference with contract or something like that. Um, yeah, this this is like as intentional of an interference with a contract as one could imagine. It's as if uh, I borrowed money from you uh, and then used it to build a factory, and then you come along and burn my factory down, and I can't pay you and anybody else. I, I mean, seems like that's your responsibility. I vaguely remember from first-year contracts uh, a doctrine that I never taught because it was too complicated, which was something along the lines of tortious interference with contract. Or maybe there's even a doctrine of prevention uh, that all of those seem to be directly relevant. So the Ukraine by itself, we could do a whole episode, but isn't all of this debt really now Russia's debt to pay? I mean, we... We've been having some version of this conversation since, what, the 2014? Um, initially, in the context of that $3 billion uh, bond that Ukraine issued basically to the Russian government, the sovereign wealth fund, but who cares? Um, and whether the annexation of Crimea was either under the doctrine of prevention or some other doctrine, it duress is, uh, it turns out what the UK courts so far have latched onto, but whether that was a basis for non-payment of that debt. The, the broader question of whether Russia kind of steps into the shoes of Ukraine, I think is a, I mean, sort of a harder one, um, but you know, uh, there certainly would be arguments, both that uh, the any debt Ukraine owed to the Russians would not have to be paid. That one seems a slam dunk. Um, but also that uh, investors in Ukraine's debt uh, would have some non-contract claims against Russia. I, I have two two sort of broader points, though, that I think maybe are worth making about this. The first is that you know we're kind of outside the realm of legality at this point. <laughs> at this point. So, um, you know, there's a certain kind of um, formalism or, or sort of armchair navel gazing to, to this discussion. Um, but the other point uh, that maybe we are going to talk about a little bit more is that in order for these any kind of rights that an investor would have to be meaningful, you've got to be able to sue the Russians and you've got to be able to find assets. And we can maybe start having that conversation in connection with Russia's own debt uh, and expand out from there. So um, before we get, I'm really interested in talking about the possibilities of suing and enforcing against Russia and maybe Belarus and uh, maybe even Ukraine, if Ukraine is under control of Mr. Putin uh, rather soon. but. Before we get to any of this, any of that, which is, you know, uh, others might see as somewhat in the weeds. Uh, for us, this is 
the stuff that we love. When I ask about uh, implications for the broader international financial system of potentially three large participants in the international debt market defaulting. And you know, there's lots of other countries such as Sri Lanka that we've talked about that are also on the brink of defaulting. And just with respect to Sri Lanka, my sense is that a large portion, maybe as much as 20 to 25% of Sri Lankan tourism revenues comes from Russia-related expenses. So you have commodity prices going up, you have a drop in a Russian expenditure in a, on a number of fronts. So, you know, I remember in the Maldives, uh, Russian tourists made up a big chunk of uh, the expenditures on tourism. So, I mean, three countries is a lot. We already had four or five that were on the brink. We could add up to 10, 12 countries defaulting very, very soon. And what happens then, Mark? Are we in a full-fledged global financial crisis? Oh, I don't have the faintest idea. I wish I did. I mean, I do think, so starting from Sri Lanka, you know, it isn't just the the tourism, which obviously has taken a huge hit anyway. I mean, Russia is not a huge export market for Sri Lanka, but it's also not trivial and has been growing, um, mostly for tea, I think. Um, you know, so, so this is hardly good news for the Sri Lankan economy, independent of what it does for, um, uh, for global markets. I mean, I guess there is such a large amount of uncertainty associated with these current events, even with regard to you know, whether CDS markets are going to pay out if there is a Russian default. So um, I guess me too, the short answer is I don't know, but it strikes me that the both the risk of three significant defaults, but maybe more broadly, the uncertainty associated with all of this increasingly global conflict can hardly be good. Yeah, I mean, I think you answered the question in a I know fashion rather than I don't know, because you increase uncertainty, that means you increase the cost of borrowing because investors are going to be very worried. And you increase the cost of borrowing for a large number of vulnerable countries around the world, vulnerability highly enhanced because of two plus years of COVID-related expenditures, you raise the cost of capital. This means they cannot borrow to finance the coupon payments and principal payments that are coming due. Uh, it's like lighting a match to a very, very dry, pile of wood. Well, and presumably we're going to see significant future disruptions to commodities markets. And I think already seeing, you know, changes uh, that are affecting the price of grain. So all of this at a time when many countries have a really significant needs to import food and other commodities uh, and those prices going up radically while 
while borrowing costs may be going up too. Oh, okay. I don't like the tone of this. This is getting very bleak and uh, depressing. Uh, even though we both work on sovereign debt, and usually it's exciting when you have lots of activity in our world, but th this is sounding uh, much scarier than I had begun our podcast uh, thinking about, although as you pointed out, mm, not, not, not good. But uh, let's uh, get to just the starting question, and maybe we'll talk about this uh, in much more detail after the break. Uh, there was an article in Bloomberg, I think, uh, maybe just a day or two ago, quoting former Elliott Associates manager Jay Newman uh, of Paripasu litigation fame, uh, saying that he was shocked at uh, Russian sovereign bond uh, disclosures that said that there was no uh, waiver of sovereign immunity. Now, Mark, you are one of the leading experts in the world on sovereign immunity, and I am, uh, I am a little dubious that this waiver is as extreme as the Bloomberg story made it out to be. My thought is somebody like you, Mark, could uh, find holes in this to drive a truck through, or maybe if you don't want to characterize it that way, that uh, litigation is certainly acceleration and then litigation is certainly plausible. Yeah, I, so I don't know. I mean, I, I wouldn't be the person rushing to court to sue the Russians um, at the moment, but maybe not maybe for reasons that are a little more complicated, which I, I think is what you're you're alluding to. So as far as I know, there are not waivers of sovereign immunity in any of the the Russian bonds. At least I haven't seen any. Um, well, Mark, let, let me just ask a clarifying question. So am I correct in understanding? So waivers of sovereign immunity can occur in two alternate ways. One, the country can explicitly waive sovereign immunity uh, from either litigation and or enforcement. And two, uh, if the country is engaged in uh, certain activities, that might be subject to uh, the protections of sovereign immunity or not the protections of sovereign immunity. Is that, that roughly correct? Yeah, that's a good way to put it. I, I think it's important just to, to aid in clear thinking that we not use the word waiver to talk about that second category. There's basically the, the power that states reserve to let their courts hear claims against foreign states. And they just they reserve that to themselves as a matter of their own sovereignty, much like, to use a litigation analogy in the United States, much like, you know, the, the state of New York reserves the right to let its courts adjudicate claims against you if you do stuff that has contacts with New York. Um, we wouldn't 
describe those contacts as a waiver. Historically, that was one of the ways they were described. But now we just think that's like, that's personal jurisdiction. You know, courts, if they can justify getting their hands on you, they'll get their hands on you. So um, the sovereign immunity works that way too. So the Russians have not waived, they have not voluntarily uh, limited the sovereign immunity that they're entitled to. But that doesn't mean that the sovereign immunity they're entitled to is absolute. It's actually limited. So the way I think it would work here is that an investor would have a pretty good argument that the background rules of sovereign immunity allowed the investor to sue the Russians, uh, most likely in New York, uh, and to get a judgment against the Russians. Uh, and then the background rules of immunity would also let the investor have some ability to go after Russian assets to try to enforce that judgment. But here's where the the real problem is. The, the background rules don't give an investor very potent enforcement rights. They, they don't give the investor potent rights to go get assets. If you want potent rights there, a waiver of immunity really does help. And I think that's the, the problem that investors encounter here is without a contractual waiver of immunity, you're going to have a hard time finding Russian assets you can grab. Okay, so I'm going to... Um... I'm going to cabin the second part of what you said for our discussion after the break, but I want to emphasize the first part of what you said. And despite your constant modesty, anybody who's listening to this should realize that Mark literally is one of the leading experts in the world, one of the two or three leading experts of the world on sovereign immunity when it comes to sovereign bonds. But I, I think what you said in the, the first part is incredibly important in contrast to the story that Bloomberg put out. And I'm not in any way blaming the Bloomberg story because it, it is an entirely reasonable reading uh, at a superficial level, but litigation, let us say I am an investor and actually a student of mine asked me this question, because this student was very irate about what was happening in Russia and wanted to know how uh, they could cause, uh, let's say, a little bit of pain to Mr. Putin. Uh, and the question was, if I were an investor, could I litigate against Russia, not because I wanted to make a financial recovery, but I just wanted to drag them into court and maybe if they didn't show up, get default judgments. And I think fairly clearly, Mark, you said, if they have issued dollar bonds to New York investors uh, with enough contacts with New York, it would be fairly easy to drag them into court in New York. And presumably Russia is not sending its lawyers since no lawyer is willing to work for them. And so that means default judgment. Is, is that correct? And then we can get into the complications about enforcement after the break, but I, I wanted to, I wanted to make sure I was really clear on that. Yeah, no, that's right. And I mean, technically, there wouldn't be a default judgment, but who cares? It would be easy to get a judgment. And if in the bonds that I've seen, the payment mechanism goes through New York. Uh, their dollar bonds, uh, at least the the when we're talking about dollar bonds, and that that should be a commercial activity with a direct 
connection to the United States, you should have no problem getting a judgment against the Russians, uh, even though the, the bonds do not have a waiver of sovereign immunity. I think that's, that's pretty clear. Okay, that is awesome. Uh, not just because it clarifies something for us, but I don't think I can ever recall Mark saying that I was right about anything. So I think that's a perfect time for us to go to break and a perfect moment in our lives of sovereignty. So Mark, I want to get now to the second part of what you said. So just to clarify again, despite the fact that Russia does not explicitly waive sovereign immunity, the background rules of sovereign immunity that come both from statute in countries like the US and the UK and Japan, but also customary international law would fairly clearly allow investors who are holding a dollar or euro bonds, or I don't think there are any Japanese yen bonds that I have seen issued by Russia, but there, there might be out there to get into court and legitimately have a claim. Now, that leads us to the second question. Can you attach stuff? Is there, is there the possibility of attaching stuff? Because as I understood you, enforcement is a different matter than actually getting a judgment and the barriers to getting past sovereign immunity rights to keep your assets are higher. That's right. And so I think uh, in the United States, the problem with not having a waiver of sovereign immunity is that you would have to take your judgment and find assets that were that met two criteria. First, they'd have to be used for a commercial activity in the United States. But then second, they would have to have a, a nexus to the underlying claim. So you'd have to show that the assets were somehow used in connection with the commercial activity that you had sued on. So used in connection with the, the issuance of your bond. Now, there, I, I think the law here is really uncertain and unclear. And I could imagine how you would still have some enforcement rights. It, maybe if we imagine some future world where uh, the Russians wanted to issue new debt in the U.S., you know, maybe you could um, you could interfere with uh, with that attempt, uh, but you'd have a hard time in the U.S. Interestingly, though, a lot of other countries don't require that second. Uh, they don't have that second requirement. So if you can find commercial assets you actually can enforce your judgment, even if those commercial assets have nothing to do with your underlying claim. So this is a weird scenario where once you had your judgment from a US court, if you could find Russian commercial assets in other countries, you actually might be able to, to go after them. So I think um, just to come back to that Bloomberg article, I, I think it's, like, it's fair to say that enforcement is harder here, but Definitely not impossible. So let me uh, ask more on 
on this point. So the U.S. is a little bit different, as I understand it. Traditionally, the U.S. has been perhaps a little more protective of the assets of foreign sovereigns, perhaps, unless they're called Iran or Afghanistan. But isn't sovereign immunity a sort of, um, it's a protection or a veil that the host country gives to foreign sovereigns almost as a matter of uh, politeness or generosity. And so in my uh, very non-legal mind, if you are a country like Russia that is violating all norms of decent international relations by just invading without adequate justification, any justification, a peaceful neighboring country, then how the hell are you entitled to uh, politeness? I mean, can't they, I mean, does the US Congress need to say, no, 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 we're not giving you the protection of sovereign immunity anymore. That's for legitimate countries. You're just a bunch of Ill illegitimates uh, running around violating international norms. Could that work as an argument or would we need Congress to say, no, we're no longer giving you protection. Or how how does this how does sovereign immunity uh, even work? I mean, you know, we had no hesitation in taking the veil off of those Afghan uh, central bank assets and making them available uh, to litigation. This seems the Russian situation seems an even clearer case of how how the hell are you entitled to sovereign immunity anymore? They should yeah. be. Fat, white, and happy for us to see. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so I, I completely agree. I mean, I, I, you know, as you know well, I, there people don't all agree on whether sovereign immunity is simply a matter of comedy, uh, although that view tends to be a bit more uh, widely accepted in the United States. Um, you know, I think the problem is, is twofold, or, or maybe the, just the answer has two parts here. One is if you go to a court and you make that argument, you have a problem because there's a statute, and the statute says pretty clearly what the court can and can't do. And even if the U.S. government were to come in and file a brief and say, you know, we don't really mind if you ignore the statute, that's not going to have any effect, I wouldn't think. I mean, the courts are, there are mechanisms for changing the law and filing an amicus brief isn't one of them. But you know, your the example of the of the Afghan central bank assets is a good one. The the US government has shown that it is willing to take fairly dramatic steps that possibly are in violation of customary international law when it doesn't like the the government of the foreign state. And certainly there's every reason to feel even more uncharitable towards the Russians right now. So Mark, I, I, I know we're, we're running out of time, even though uh, this is our special emergency podcast and we'll probably go a tiny bit longer than we usually do. Uh, but I, I hope you don't mind if I take the conversations into the weeds of uh, particular clauses. And while there are going to be some investors, perhaps, uh, like 
my uh, students want to be, who just want to see how they can use bond contract terms to, to fight against the Russians, to help our Ukrainian friends. Uh, there might be other investors who are much more concerned about their bottom line. And so actually at a broader level, I'm wondering what's going to happen in the market as the prices of these bonds drop further and further. I mean, Russian bonds were trading at par or above par just a little while ago. Now, I think the last I saw on Matt, in Matt Levine's column was that they were at 30 cents on the dollar and potentially dropping even further. Does, does the investor type who buys this sort of stuff uh, change at some point? And does the investor type become a more litigious type? So I, I'm going to respond to this by asking you a question, because I think traditionally, of course, we both know the answer to that question would be yes. I mean, maybe 30 cents is still a little high for the kind of classic distressed debt firm to come in, but we're certainly getting in that range. But we, you've got to have a, a plan for getting paid. And we've been talking about the ability to sue and get judgments and so forth, but there, you know, that's not the only way that you can get paid, or, or at least it's um, uh, uh, not obviously the best way here. So we've seen other successful techniques for creditors who want to go to court. What about in these Russian bonds? What about the Pari Passu clause, for instance. Are there other tools an investor can use? Oh, I'm so glad you brought up Pari Passu clause. And, and we, we also have to talk about the prescription clauses that are so weird in the, in the Russian contracts. I, I mean, the Russian contracts have a lot of weird clauses in them that at first cut, you might think, given that they all have really expensive lawyers drafting these, that are the product of uh, rational design, clever rational design. The more I read them, uh, I kind of think that some of them are just goofs. But, you know, you go to court on these and the court's going to read them uh, strictly, especially a New York court. But I, I want to start with the question of what happens in an unusual situation like uh, Russia, and then maybe we can add Ukraine and Belarus. The history of sovereign debt, maybe even the pre-litigation history of sovereign debt, if we go back to the 1800s, and maybe even further back, has been one of making bets on conflict. So when sovereigns get into conflict, armed conflict with other sovereigns, then the one that wins is probably going to be paying its debt, and the one that loses things become much more complicated, but it's not just a win-lose proposition. It's also people are betting on whether there is peace. So if Putin decides tomorrow, yeah, I was just trying to scare everybody and I'm withdrawing all my troops back into Russia, uh, maybe just taking a few chunks of Ukraine here and there, uh, uh, making, uh, uh, entering into a peace treaty with the Ukrainians that the Ukrainians are desperate for, then I would think that 
the Russian debt that let's say hypothetically has dropped to 15 cents on the dollar goes back to par. And whoever make, takes that bet that the peace treaty is going to happen makes millions, if not billions potentially. And maybe this, in today's world, this seems like a crazy scenario, but if you go back as far as Waterloo or any of the other major conflicts that we've seen through history, a lot of big financiers made these kinds of bets. And a lot of them invested heavily in both news from particular from the inside of particular governments about what was going to be happening, and in some case, potentially interfering with the direction of negotiations. So, okay, so now this is actually fun to think about, but a lot of people, I think, are going to be thinking about how to make a lot of money. And Russia is not a traditional distressed sovereign because it has so much in the way of assets. It, its debt is only distressed because of its bad behavior, which it could turn on a dime. So I don't know, Mark, I haven't really asked you a question, but you know the history of sovereign debt as well as I do, if not better. And this strikes me as very different from the modern context, but not so different as a historical matter. I have been depressed and anxious uh, for quite some time as a result of all of this. I think a lot of people have. And hearing you talk, is there something kind of heartening and optimistic about that in a in a strange way? But I'm also I am a bit skeptical. Right? The the alternative way of viewing this is that we're entering into an era of much more significant geopolitical tension and an area where it's hard to see the the sort of rapprochement that you're you're kind of envisioning i mean i'm i would that would be a, a delightful world if the russian tanks turned around and headed back into russia and there was something approaching normalization but it seems really hard to I don't know. I'm. I. I have no expertise in the political economy here or in the international relations. I'm just. I'm not at a point where I'm willing to be optimistic about that. I am very optimistic about the power of greed. And if there's a whole bunch of powerful uh, Russian oligarchs close to Putin and Putin himself, who's who are buying uh, these bonds at. Uh, dirt cheap prices, then they've got a massive incentive to have a lovely, peaceful treaty, kiss and make up and make billions. And history tells us that this kind of shit happens. And I bet the Western governments will turn a blind eye uh, to the money that is being made. I, I mean, it's not even clear that it would be a violation, although it's probably some kind of manipulation of the securities markets. But we saw this ki these kinds of shenanigans happen recently for another country, relatively recently, and the SEC turned a blind eye. Mm -hmm. I do have uh, great faith in the power of greed. Now, maybe Putin really is crazy, but I don't know. Between extreme greed and crazy, 
uh, there's a sweet spot somewhere. But you asked about pari passu clauses, and I, I'm gonna. This is really remarkable because for anybody who doesn't know, the pari passu clauses are among the most famous clauses in sovereign bonds, and they were revised in almost every sovereign bond in around 2014, every international sovereign bond around 2014 to make them less vulnerable to holdout creditors bringing suits such as the kind of lawsuit that was brought against Argentina by the aforementioned Jay Newman and Elliott Associates. So now let's look at the the Russian uh, sovereign bonds pari passu clause. And I am reading from uh, a 2018 issuance that uh, I think is due uh, 2047 or something like that. So Mark, here's, here's the language in the status clause. As at their date of issue, the bonds rank pari passu without any preference among themselves and pari passu with all other unsecured and unsubordinated obligations of the Russian Federation. And since you're a careful reader, let me emphasize that unsecured and unsubordinated obligations is not a defined term. <laughs> this is an old style pari passu clause that the Russians did not modify to protect themselves against the kind of Elliott Associates lawsuits. And the clause is incredibly broad to, as I, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, to basically all of their debt. So, I mean, Elliott Associates, please come to the party and use this the way you have Tormented Argentina, can you maybe bring some torment to uh, Russia? Uh, Mark, am I? No, am you, I <laughs> you're right. These are really interesting clauses. There's, there's two ways in which they're super broad. Maybe one way in which they're a bit narrower, though, and, and I don't know how it would cut out. Let me, the narrower way, at least if memory serves, if we're comparing this clause to the one that Argentina used, there were, there was a, a bit of language in the Argentina bond that said the securities would rank equally in right of payment. And I don't see that language in the Russian pari passu clause. And maybe that narrows it a little bit relative to that Argentina, the maybe, Argentine maybe, one. Maybe, maybe, but remember, so uh, I know those of our reader, our listeners are not as obsessed with pari passu as, as we are. Uh, we wrote an article about this together. That's one of my favorite articles. But that Andreas Lowenfeld memo, Andreas Lowenfeld was a famous international law scholar at NYU who wrote the crucial memo for his client, Elliot Associates, about the meaning of pari passu clauses that he said allowed Elliot to chase after the Argentine assets if they were paying anybody else. And that memo was very clear that all of these forms of the pari passu clause were the same, essentially. 
And you and I made the distinction of, oh, the Argentine clause had the language in right of payment, uh, and we attached great emphasis to it. And I think there might have been at least one court decision that uh, suggested that, but it was never made clear. And now that we are on the other side, Andreas Lowenfeld becomes our friend, no? Dinder, you're, you're absolutely right. Um, uh, and in other respects, the, the clause is super broad. I mean, as you point out, in the, the modern version of the Pari Passu clause, it, it, nobody bothers to tell you what the clause actually means, but there's this sentence that tells you what it doesn't mean. It basically doesn't mean uh, that we have to pay people equally. And that language is missing from the Russian bonds. And even weirder, as you're right. I mean, I'm just looking at the prospectus. Maybe the fiscal agency agreement has slightly different language, but the prospectus makes it look as if, you know, their, your peri passu rights extend to, you know, paying the salaries of Russian policemen, right? Again, any payment to an unsecured and unsubordinated uh, creditor of any sort in any currency uh, would trigger the, the peri passu clause. That's, that's just a really, really broad version. Yeah, we should. We need to call up all of the all of the hedge funds who we have been opposing over the years and say, you know, hey, you know, time time for you guys to play on the side of angels. That's right. Exactly. Be truth and justice, and and on the side of light. I agree. Yeah, and they, all of them like to always talk about how they're in defense of, uh, they're in support of the rule of law, and they're just enforcing contract rights. So. Um, welcome to the party, guys. Uh, this this clause is made for you. Uh, I'm not going so far as to say we would write uh, expert opinions to support that uh, uh, interpretation. We we probably couldn't because it would contradict so much of what we've <laughs> said. But everybody else has ignored uh, our views for such a long time that our views surely are not going to matter. But uh, Mark. I want to talk about one more clause, and that I know we we need to um, go off of this. But the and before getting the 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 implications of the pari passu clause are quite significant because it it means it's not just about attaching assets as we saw in the Second Circuit uh, opinion and Judge Grisey's opinion. It's about being able to stop anyone else from doing business with Russia. That was the potency of the whole Pari Passu strategy that was used by Elliot and Aurelius so successfully against Argentina. And, uh, you know, this time, maybe the IMF and the U.S. Treasury would come in and say, hey, look, you have an old style pari passu clause, and if you did not change your pari passu clause in 2014, it means you wanted the old style pari passu clause, and that was vulnerable uh, to the Second Circuit's interpretation uh, in New York. So, uh, Mark, would that argument work before we get to the prescription clauses? We, I mean, the one thing that we we can take away from the last 10 or 20 years of litigation with, with some confidence, I think, is that, you know, courts are not uh, absolutely deferential to the views of the, the U.S. government. I mean, the Venezuela is sort of experiencing that now. 
but you know the u.s government's views have a huge amount of weight and especially if the government were to come in and say look this has no adverse foreign policy implications for us and in fact is consistent with u.s foreign policy there that would that would presumably be something that a court would would really assign a significant amount of weight to don't you think yeah i think so i think this could this could play out very differently this could be war through the financial markets and in 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 many ways i think the russians might not have uh, worked through all of the implications of what can happen via sanctions mechanisms because one important aspect of sanctions mechanisms is what happens to sovereign immunity as you made so nice and clear to us, which is sanctions involve not only penalizing, but sanctions also involve uh, removing the protections that we normally give to you. And that has big implications in a situation like this. But um, I want to ask you one last question about weird uh, Russian clauses. And that has to do with the prescription clause, which I think we have blogged about this um, ages and ages ago, but the Russian clause is very weird. And those investors who are on our side, uh, on the side of uh, good versus bad, may want to keep this in mind because they don't have that much time. The clock starts running as I read these clauses. Uh, now, this could work badly for Russia if investors realize this, because it means there will be a rush to litigation. So let me read uh, the prescription clause in the Russian documents, or at least the one, the one that I have opened, the 2018 issuance, issuance. Claims against the Russian Federation in respect of principle and interest shall become void let me emphasize again, void, unless made within a period of three years from the date following the maturity date or a relevant interest payment date as applicable. And relevant, the word relevant is not a defined term. So Mark, am I reading this correctly to say investors have a lot less time to bring action against Russia? on these bonds. You know, I find these clauses, as you know, so unusual, although this one at least is clear in some ways uh, that other prescription clauses are not. You know, we've, we've talked before about how the history of these clauses, at least as we understand it, is sort of protection for the trustee or the fiscal agent. Some you know, a period of time where the financial intermediary can kind of forget about investors. They, they don't, don't have to worry anymore that an investor might show up waving a coupon five years uh, uh, after the payment date and come after you if you don't have the money. This clause it clearly does not say that. It talks about claims against the issuer, claims against the Russian Federation. And you know, it seems to me that there's two ways you can understand this clause. 
one is exactly the way you described it, Me Too. It's forget New York's six-year statute of limitations. Actually, these are probably English law bonds um, now that I'm thinking about it, but forget the the governing statute of limitations, you got three years from the date of each payment to file your lawsuit. So that that's one way. And I think probably if I had to bet that's the way it would be understood. The other way though is maybe a claim means something different than a lawsuit. Maybe a claim means something like a demand for payment. Uh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, be super confident in that if I were an investor, but but if that's how you read the clause, then you know you gotta you gotta make a frowny face at the Russians and say we want to be paid, but your statute of limitations is what it is under the background law. What do you think? Well, I I think that's exactly right. You know, there's the question of what is a claim. So there's an obscure case against. Argentina, I think brought by an hedge fund named Ape or Ape. And in that case, Argentina defended the case, defended the claim based on their prescription clause. And the judge said, you know, claim, claim is just a claim. And they, they made a phone call saying, we want to get paid and you didn't bother returning their phone call. And so they've made a claim within the appropriate amount of time. But there was also the suggestion in the Argentine case, as I read the judge's uh, decision, Judge Preska was the decision that, you know, it's really not clear what your prescription clauses are saying. And the Russian prescription clause is a bit clearer. There's also the, and this is uh, civil procedure, I think, and I, I should ask you, I, I'm not even sure which statute of limitations would apply. So let's say you had a litigation in New York, but the contract was governed by the law of England. Oh God, you're right. Who's, I, I mean, I should know this as a, I'm an, as a self-respecting law professor, but I don't know the answer. Is this, is this a substantive law question or is it a procedural law question or wh- what happens? But I think regardless, an investor should be worried that they only have three years uh, to do whatever they need to do. And I would not be taking any bets that claim is just a phone call to the offices of whoever's willing to represent Russia now. Yeah, I, w- I wouldn't either. And and you're probably right. I mean, I would have to look at New York law on this. I'm embarrassed that I don't know it, but normally statutes of limitation are treated as procedural. And so the the forum applies its own statute of limitations. So uh, that would mean New York. But in any event, the point is the broader one that uh, there's a real probability that three years is what you got here. Mita, we've, we've, we've been going for longer than we had planned, but frankly, I I find it, somewhat fun to think about these things um, rather than uh, to mire in my existential dread. So maybe I can ask you one more contracty question, um, if you don't mind. Please, please ask, even though you you know that I know so much less than you do, but I will attempt to give an answer that will be surely wrong. And then you can um, give it, uh, give the more nuanced and 
correct answer. That is uh, we're always that so is, polite, but uh, that, that is but so not true. Or what will likely happen is I will tell you that you're wrong, and then I'll come creeping back a week later to be like, "Oh, I've I realized that <laughs> I was the wrong one." Um, I so maybe you have seen this clause in other contexts, but I confess I have not, and I'm interested in this. I think it's called a alternative currency event or something like that. But there, there's, and the Russian bonds have gone through a couple of iterations of these clauses. So back in maybe 2015 or 2016, in dollar denominated bonds, we started to see this clause that said, basically like, if we can't come up with the dollars through no fault of our own, we can pay you in euros or Swiss francs or whatever. But, but in more recent years, it says that, but then it keeps going and it says, and you know, if we can't come up with the euros or this was francs, we'll pay you in rubles. And I'm wondering whether you have seen this before, what it means, whether there are limitations for this subset of the Russian bonds. Can they really just say, oh, we're going to pay you in rubles? I, I have not seen this clause anywhere else, although I think I have seen cousins of this clause that go in a somewhat different direction, and, and that is relevant for Belarus. But this particular clause, I tried reading it as well before we did our podcast today, and I found it utterly confusing, but potentially quite relevant because I was reading news stories early in the morning where Russia was saying, you know, we're just going to pay in rubles. And presumably that was tied to what they think they have in their very confusing clause. Although, I mean, these are under English law. So this would be a substantive provision that would have to go before either a New York judge interpreting English law or an English judge interpreting English law. And uh, some of these um, contracts have, I think, arbitration provisions. So uh, that potentially adds in another complication. But if I were Russia, I would not bet on uh, being able to actually use uh, these ruble payment clauses for both the reason that it's not really clear when it's justified and whether Russia causing the problem Correct. Uh, allows for the justification. Um, and because they, they're going to be subject to uh, this decision in a foreign court and a court of a jurisdiction that is not going to be so friendly towards them. If you're a legal realist, uh, you're not you're going to think uh, Russia is not going to be uh, getting a lot of sympathy from either English courts or U.S. courts on this front. But I also, I, I don't know, Mark, if you've noticed, and I promise this is the last thing I'll say about this, uh, and you can wrap, is there are also sanctions uh, uh, clauses in some of these bonds. And they, these are relatively recent. And I, I noticed one in the Belarus bonds, where there's a lot of disclosure in their most recent bond about the impact of sanctions, because I think that when the bond was issued in 2020, it was already under sanctions because it's dictator, you know, the elections were kind of fraudulent looking and 
you know, they, they, they uh, had been implicated in a variety of other skullduggery. So there was the concern and there are some promises that none of the proceeds of the bonds will be used for any sort of sanctionable or sanctioned activity. And I mean, that seems like if Belarus is helping the Russians uh, using just general proceeds, uh, these anti-sanctions clauses that investors must have demanded are potentially uh, at risk of a claim that they are violated. Of course, there's also eligibility to use IMF resources and I wonder whether Belarus could be said as no longer in the good graces of the IMF. Okay, there's just too much and maybe we should uh, wrap it there, but Mark, I'm gonna let you have the last word. <laughs> and so, so I haven't looked at those sanctions clauses. I mean, if, if your description, if I'm understanding your description right, then this sounds like either complete bullshit or just investors protecting themselves by being able to say, oh, no, we put a provision in there that said our money couldn't be used for sanctioned or sanctionable conduct. But, you know, um, presumably there's a tracing issue there, right? The money just goes into the general fund and, you know, it's some other money maybe that gets used for uh, supporting the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Who knows? Um, That seems... um, uh, I'd like to see the clause, but that seems uh, it's hard to believe uh, that that would have a real effect here. But uh, that's something I need to think about. Anyway, um, this has been a lot of fun just as an interlude to think about some of the the complexities that affect the type of work that you and I do. Obviously, so much more is going on. And in some ways, these issues are small in relation to the invasion itself and to the humanitarian disaster. But, um, you know, there there's a, a reason to think that all of these sanctions and investor remedies maybe will wind up playing a significant role in, in shaping what happens here over the next few years. So I, I guess I guess we will see, right, me too? We will see, but this might not be the last of our emergency podcasts on. Oh, may, I mean, make it be the last emergency one. Uh, although I like doing them on, on short notice, I, I feel like we could do with fewer emergencies these days rather than more. Mm-hmm.